Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, Jesus, we are walking through the Gospel of Mark to discover the answer to the question, who is this man? Our speaker today is teaching minister Tim Peace. I'm going to start off this morning with a story that I told a few years ago. Actually, it was before we got into this building. Um, so if you heard that sermon and you actually remember it, <laughs> like, anyway, um, you're going to hear it again, but this story kind of came to mind as I was thinking about the passage that we're going to be talking about or the passages we're going to be talking about this week. And I initially told Aaron Adams, our student minister, I'm like, I don't want to tell that story again. I don't really like telling the story in the first place. And uh, I've already told it before, but then I couldn't sleep last night because I thought I was supposed to tell a story, so I'm going to tell a story. So when I was in high school and I first came to faith, um, I kind of got caught up into the zeal and the fire of the moment, which is not a bad thing. I think a lot of people that come to faith, uh, or when they're new to faith, they, they, uh, they catch fire and they just want to go tell the whole world. But because I was a musician at the time and I played in a local band and we did concerts and stuff, I got, I got kind of caught up in um, the whole uh, Christian musician scene of things and things that were accompanying with that. And one of the groups or organizations that was prevalent in that community of musicians that I was a part of was called, a, was called Rock for Life. And Rock for Life um, would show up at, you know, these concerts that they'd have that were Rock for Life sponsored, and they would share um, a message of, of being pro-life and, um, you know, being against uh, the issue of abortion. And naturally there, uh, in order to show that you were a part of it, they'd have you sign up a, you know, form or something, and they even had swag you could get so you could wear proudly. And naturally, being caught up in the moment, I bought a shirt. And I was proud of this shirt. Now, I will tell you, there were multiple shirts with multiple sayings that you could have picked from. I picked the most lighthearted of them, but nevertheless, the shirt that I bought was a navy blue shirt with all white letters that said, abortion is mean. And I decided to wear it to school. Because I had zeal. I was going to show everyone what I thought about this particular issue. One day I wore it, and as I was exiting school for the day to go to my car, a young lady that was a fellow student saw the shirt, began to weep. And then she shouted a word at me that I can't repeat here. And then she walked away crying. Now, my immediate reaction to this moment was, I just got persecuted. This is awesome. I felt good about myself. You know, I had heard about, you know, that this might happen, you know, if you get on fire and you share your faith and all this stuff. And so I thought, well, hey, this was my moment here. A few months later, the summer came, and me and some friends went to a music festival and a friend of mine there, we got into a conversation around our camp area, and we started talking about this organization and these shirts. And my friend started to tell me that he won't wear the shirt anymore. 
And I was befuddled. I was like, why wouldn't you wear this shirt, man? Don't you want to show everyone what you think? And he said, Tim, said, I want you to imagine something for a moment. He said, what's your biggest vice, your biggest sin, the one that you don't want anybody to know about? He said, imagine if someone put that on a shirt to wave it in your face. How do you think you would respond to that? Cut me deep. I never wore the shirt again after that. And it wasn't really because I had changed my mind on that particular issue. It was because I recognized something in the moment. In my zeal, I thought my job was to tell everyone else what they should think about this sort of thing and not let God handle in his own work in that situation. And instead of the pride that I had in getting my point across, I should have wept because in that moment, I probably did more damage to that one person by waving that message in her face than I did in turning her toward Jesus, whom I love. Now, I wanted to share that story with you this morning because we're going to continue on in our series called Jesus. And then we are coming to the middle point of the Gospel of Mark. And as you've probably picked up on as we've gone through this series, or if you've been reading Mark on your own time or within your small group, you've noticed or probably heard that we've brought up this question that the Gospel of Mark focuses in on who is Jesus. But the funny thing about that question is, is Mark tells us who Jesus is right out of the gate. Chapter 1, verse 1, this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Simple as that. There's actually a bigger question the gospel begins to ask of you as a reader or a hearer of the message. And it's this. When you encounter Jesus, how will you respond to him? How will you respond to him? And we start to see this because the way the gospel plays itself out is you see this movement of Jesus doing or saying things, and Mark loves to note how the people respond. Sometimes it's just a generic, well, the crowd responded in amazement. Other times you'll get stories of individuals that come to Jesus, asking him to heal someone they love, questioning him, declaring things about him. And we as a hearer of this gospel are supposed to take that And ask the question, well, if I were in their shoes and I was around Jesus, how would I respond? Would I respond like this person or this person or this person? And so this morning, what I want to do in light of the story I shared about a situation I had is I want to say at the outset that my goal is to get you to seriously reconsider whether or not you should share your faith. Which I know is probably not something you're used to a preacher saying, because, you know, we always tell you to go share your faith with people, right? But I want to show you in the story that how we respond to Jesus 
And what we believe about him shows up in the way that we live and speak to others. And it can cause great good in somebody's life because they can come to the Lord or it can damage. And Jesus was always aware of the people around him. And if you trace the stories in the gospel, you'll find at many points, Jesus would always charge different people, hey, don't tell anybody what happened here. Hey, don't tell anyone what you just said. And we have to ask why. So we're going to look at two stories this morning in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 7 and 8. And the two stories show two different people. One of them shows exemplary faith. The other one shows just how much they fumbled in their faith. And it might surprise you when we look at these stories, which one is which? Or at least the way the story's told it should surprise you. See, when we get to the middle of the Gospel of Mark, we've just come from a place where Jesus has fed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. And his disciples that have been closest to him have seen this miracle happen. And after they're done, Jesus tells them to go along in a boat across the sea. And he says, I'll catch up with you later. Well, at the end of chapter 6, when he catches up to them later, we find out Jesus was being quite literal because he goes walking on the water to go catch up to them. And his disciples are in the boat, and they don't, they don't shout with joy that Jesus is doing this miraculous thing. No, in fact, they're frightened. They think he's a ghost. It says that when they saw him, they were terrified, and he tells them immediately, says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then after that, we're told that they were completely amazed. But if you're a Greek geek like me, you'll find out that that word amazed isn't the good kind. They're dumbfounded. They're sitting here thinking, who is this guy? And we're told that they think this about him because it says that their hearts were hardened. Which isn't a good sign. Because these are the guys Jesus called to be closest to him. They've seen his greatest miracles. They've gotten the inside scoop on the explanations about the most challenging parables that he shared with the crowds. And yet their hearts... The hearts of his closest followers, his closest friends, are hardened. And so chapter 7 and chapter 8 create a situation for us where we start to recognize the different reactions to the people around Jesus. And it starts out with the Pharisees, and as you read the Gospel of Mark, you start to feel like the Pharisees are the villains of the story, when in reality... They're religious leaders, they're fellow rabbis to Jesus, and they think that the faith, the Jewish faith that they profess, ought to be taught and trained in a certain way, and they measure Jesus up in comparison to the way that they do things with their disciples. And when they see Jesus in conflict, it creates conflict and tension between them. And yet, we also find stories in 7 and 8 where Jesus brings healing into the life of individuals no-name people. 
People that we might find out what region they're from, but nothing else. And it's one of those that I want us to look at today. It's Jesus honoring the request of the Syrophoenician woman. It occurs in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, and this is what it says here. It says that Jesus left the place that he was at, and he went to the village of Tyre. He, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. That he could not keep his secret or his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Jesus goes on and he then heals a deaf man. He feeds 4,000. He repeats the miracle that he had just done prior to chapter 7. He gives the disciples stern warning to not be like the Pharisees, to not follow in their footsteps. And then he comes to the second story that I want to bring up. The great confession of Peter in Mark chapter 8. It says that Jesus, starting in verse 27 of chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, what do people say I am? Or who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, if you've been keeping score at home in the Gospel of Mark, you might be doing a little happy dance for Peter right now because he's just said that Jesus is the Christ, which we know from chapter 1, verse 1, that that's the right answer. And how does Jesus respond to the great confession of Peter? Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, for those of us that have heard this story before, that's not a shock because we know Peter. We know what happens after this. Jesus, he turns and he says, actually, what's going to happen to the Messiah is he's going to be handed over and he's going to be crucified. But on the third day, rise. And Peter effectively then says, you know what? No Messiah of mine is going to be handed over and crucified. And he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you're thinking like a person and not with the thoughts of God above. And so what we have here in these two stories are examples of one person showing exemplary faith to Jesus 
and one completely missing the mark. Now, if you are a first century hearer of the Gospel of Mark, especially a first century Jewish person, the story of the woman coming to Jesus would have shocked you at your core. In that culture, it was standard practice for a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, to have nothing to do with women and definitely nothing to do with Gentile women. They would have not only just shooed her away, they probably would have never let her near the rabbi. As harsh as that is, that's the culture that it was. And so Jesus merely interacting with her was, again, another instance of him being out of step with the Pharisees that were around him critiquing his every move and every deed. Now, we like that part of Jesus, but I'm about to ruin it for us. Because this is what happens. It says that this woman comes and asks Jesus. She doesn't just ask him. She lays herself at his feet. She is in a begging posture. And Jesus, you know, who we always picture with a baby in one arm and a lamb in the other, smiling. This is how he responds to this woman in chapter 7. He says, First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, I don't know about you, but calling anybody a dog, even in our modern culture, is probably not the nicest thing to say. And it definitely would have been problematic because for a Jewish person, a dog would have been an unclean animal. So this was a major insert. I was reading some commentaries on this this week, and it's kind of funny how these guys try to like blunt the effect of what Jesus is saying. They're like, well, the word for dog is not a wild dog, so at least he's calling her a household pet. <laughs> I'm like, no, that doesn't matter. See, our, our nice, pretty portrait of, of white Jesus with long, flowing blonde hair and a lamb, not the Jesus of the Gospel of Mark. But here's the beauty of what happens in this story. She doesn't get up and go away. You know what she does? She effectively says, ah, I know who you are. I know what you're capable of doing. And I'm not leaving here until you do it because you're the only one that can. So she persists, and she comes up with this little comebacker to Jesus' saying. And she says, you know what? Even the dogs will eat the crumbs off of the ground from the little children's table. Jesus is taken aback with joy at her faith. And he says, you can go. Your daughter's healed. And when she gets home, it's exactly as Jesus said it would be. And you'll notice something too. Jesus doesn't tell this woman not to tell anybody about what he's done. He doesn't tell her to keep silent. He has commended her faith by responding faithfully to her. And he doesn't silence her. The woman in the story that for first century ears would have been the last person that you would think would be the example of good faith in Jesus is commended for what she's done. And when you turn the page just a chapter more, 
you come and find Peter, the spokesman of the disciples, the one of the 12, the guy in the inner circle of the three. He's seen it all. He's heard it all. He should know it better than anybody else. And when he makes the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, which he is, Jesus tells him to keep his mouth shut. If you're reading this and hearing this with first century ears and eyes, this would be a shock to you too. Why would Jesus want to keep quiet that he's the Messiah? Well, here's the thing. For somebody like Peter... All he has ever wanted growing up as a Galilean fisherman, being taxed, being oppressed, being occupied by the Roman legions of the day, all he wants, all he and his people have longed for are a Messiah to come and knock the Romans out, to take his seat on the throne, and create peace and prosperity for all of the Israelite people. That's the kind of Messiah that Peter and his fellow comrades are expecting Jesus to be. And the moment that Peter says, you are the Messiah to Jesus, Jesus knows exactly what is packed into that word for Peter. And he says, I don't want anyone to hear that come out of your mouth. You see, here's the thing about this. We like to think about riskiness in faith. And we definitely like to think of the disciples as taking a risk, right? Have you guys ever thought about what a risk is? I love giving definitions for things. You know how a risk is defined? A risk is defined when somebody does something without having the confirmation or the certainty that the Outcome will be positive or negative. That's what makes it a risk. The person doesn't know whether or not what comes back to them in light of what they've said or done will be positive or negative in their lives. And we think of the disciples as risk takers. At the very beginning of the story, when Jesus calls them, it says that Peter and Andrew and James and John, they drop their nets and they follow Jesus with no abandon. And we think, well, that's risky faith right there. But the question is, is it? If Jesus is the kind of Messiah you want and you expect him to be, where's really the risk in you, in you following him? He's gonna take all your problems and all your worries away. And you get to be one of the top guys in his crew. You get to be at the right or the left of the king. Where's the risk in that? Do you know who took a risk in this story? It's the Syrophoenician woman. It's the woman that could have been in big social, even physical trouble for even approaching a rabbi in her culture. She wasn't even Jewish. Who knows if she even had a full understanding of what the word Messiah meant and yet she had enough faith in who Jesus was that she was willing to risk everything to go fall at his feet. And even when he pushed back 
in a way that really, really messes with our sensibilities as modern people, she persists and she's commended because Jesus responds to her faith in a faithful way. She showed the risky faith. What Peter and his fellow disciples wanted were a risk-free faith and a risk-free Messiah. And we know that because right after Peter is told to keep his mouth zipped, Jesus then tells them what's going to happen to their Messiah and they can't stomach it. Because the Messiah that gets crucified is just too risky. And I'm gonna go ahead and ruin the end of the story for you. When Jesus gets arrested and crucified, do you know what his disciples do, those risk takers? They go run away scared. You know, I think about this story and I think about the fact that faith is always, always risky. That's what true faith is. It doesn't mean that something bad is inherently gonna happen. It just means that we're called to have faith regardless of the outcome. And it's always funny when we read the Gospels, the people that we find that actually exhibit the faith that Jesus calls us to and the ones who don't. Do you know who should have understood who Jesus was and shown all the faith in the world? The Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the disciples of Jesus. It should not have been these no-name characters, and yet it is. And that's why I shared the story that I did at the beginning. Because I believe that Jesus at once, those with true risky faith, to be the ones to open their mouths and share their faith. Because the moment you share that true faith in Jesus, the moment someone can look in your life and see who you are and see Jesus with skin on, as my friend Gail used to say. When they look at you, do they see Jesus as he truly is? Or do they see the Jesus you want him to be? Or worse. So I bring up the challenge again. Consider what you share when you share your faith. I'm having to grapple with that in my own life right now. So I'm not, I don't, I didn't really want to do this because I don't like attention that much. I'm going to turn red actually just saying this, but my wife is due to have our first kid in July. And we, and we have, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We, we have, we are having a boy. And it's exciting and scary. More scary, mostly exciting, but a lot scary. Um, and we, we were actually in a discussion yesterday. We've got family staying with us right now. And uh, we were somehow talking about, like, what does faith influence in your kid's life look like? And Angie chimed into our discussion and said, you know what we're having, right? And I was like, what? She's like, we're having a PK. We're having a preacher's kid. <laughs> See, I say it, and you all know the stereotype, the rebellious kid because unfortunately, like, you know, when God calls you, I just can't turn and run, so I'm stuck doing this, and so the kid's stuck with me. And so I was thinking about what does it mean 
to pour my faith into the life of my kid. See, because here's the thing about this risky faith thing. It's all well and good to put the veneer on when you're out in public. But we all know that our primary assignments in life from God are those closest to us. And I immediately was overcome with the reality that no matter what I say about my faith, to quote Marvin Lewis, (laughs) my kid will always see better than he hears. And I read this story, and I think of Peter, our exemplar in the faith, the failure turned famed first apostle that converts thousands on the day of Pentecost. But in this moment, he got it wrong, and he didn't even realize it. And I thought about that. I was thinking, what will my kids see? What will my kids see when I tell them about Jesus? Because here's the thing, like, I'm not going to shut up about my faith. But I hope to God that what my kid sees would cause me, if Jesus were standing next to me, to be the kind of person he would tell to go share that faith with my kid. See, that's the question. If I'm living around the people that I'm around, would Jesus tell me to share that faith or would he tell me to keep quiet? It's easy to go tell people to go share their faith and give them three steps for how to do it so they can overcome their fears. Don't be afraid to share your faith because you don't know that you know enough. Instead, have a little bit of fear of what people see when you share and ask yourself, will I be commended for the faith I display in my life, in my actions, in my words, or will Jesus tell me to be quiet? And if he would tell me to be quiet, what do I do next? Well, you lean into him and you ask him to transform your life. To become the kind of person that he would want you to go share your faith with. Because see, that's the big question of the Gospel of Mark. We know who Jesus is out of the gate. There's no disputing that. The question for the rest of the story as we go through the rest of this series is going to be how do you respond? How do the people respond to Jesus along the way? Will you be the disciple that runs away scared when he's arrested? Or will you be the woman at the empty tomb who goes and tells people that Jesus is risen? That's the question of the gospel. And it's not just a question for 2,000 years ago. It's a question for each one of us sitting in this room. Because if you don't know Jesus yet, your first question is how will I respond once I figure out who Jesus is? The next question that never goes away in your entire life as a believer is what new way can I come closer to God so that I can be the kind of person he would want me to share my faith with on a daily basis? It's a scary proposition to think about. And yet, I would charge you this morning that when you consider what you share when you share your faith, to have the bold, risky faith of the woman who would not leave Jesus alone and not that of the disciple 
who was so dead set on Jesus being a different Messiah that he couldn't see past his own nose the kind of Messiah Jesus really was. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for being good and gracious to us. I thank you for the risky faith that you call us to. I thank you for the fact, God, that when we stumble into a passage like this and we become fear-stricken at the notion that we might be more like Peter, and you know I have been more times than I'd like to admit. I also am thankful, God, that you laid your life down for us while we were still those imperfect people. And, why, and the fact that you don't beat us up for being those imperfect people, but you help pick us up and say, try again, try again, try again. I thank you for that grace, God. And I pray, God, that we will become the kind of people that you would be grateful that we would be so bold to go out and share our faith with the world around us. Let us honor you with our words and our deeds in our lives. And for those in the room that don't know you yet, God, I pray that they would be moved to take that first step of faith, enter the water of baptism, and begin to follow you. We love you, Lord, and it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.